Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 7, verses 20 to 28. Wherever you are this morning, if you have a Bible or the Bible app on your phone or computer, perhaps it'd be good to have that available now as we turn to the passage in Hebrews 7 that Patricia read earlier for us in this service. As she mentioned, we read and we preach from the English Standard Version at Christ the King, but whatever translation you're used to is fine, of course, as you follow along. Let me thank you again for joining us. Both you who are regularly part of our worship here at Christ the King, along with the several of you, I think, who've contacted me through the week who are not normally with us here in Toronto. You've contacted me in, in different ways to ask about this service. Wherever you are this morning, whether it's in Calgary or California or Georgia or Vancouver or Pennsylvania or in Toronto or anywhere else, however connected we've been in the past, I'm glad you're tuning in. We're doing our best to make this service available to you because I think this is where we need to be this morning. Spending time in the scriptures, considering the truths that we find in these eight verses of Hebrews chapter seven, I'm convinced this is where we need to be. And partly I'm convinced of that because I realize for myself just how hard it is to do this. How hard it is to focus my own mind and my own heart right now. We all have been met by the overwhelming deluge of news as we've watched the world literally change this week. And amidst an unending stream of updates has come the sometimes confusing task of trying to sort out exactly what it is we're supposed to do in this time how it is exactly we're supposed to live. Even that would be enough or even too much probably if it was all we had to deal with, but of course it isn't all. These aren't just times of confusion. They're times of loss as well. For all of us, and I feel it no more acutely than in this moment, standing here alone, essentially in, in crimson teas and speaking to you in this way, there's, there's a deep loss of connection. There's the loss of what we thought of as normal life. The loss also of plans and hopes. Both in the long and in the short term, we've literally watched the future shrink this week. Some of you have left Toronto to return home. Others have returned to Toronto from wherever you'd been just a week ago. In some cases, of course, it's even worse. There's been loss of employment or of investments or of income. And in a few cases so far, there's been loss of health. And maybe for some, or some you know of, loss of loved ones. Dear friends, I'm no expert, 
But from what I've been able to read, it seems we're likely to experience more of all of those things in the days ahead. And so I do want to acknowledge that our minds and hearts are not naturally calm in this kind of environment. I've felt that this week. Even the study I attempted in preparing for this sermon was unusually challenging for me because I think it's hard to focus these days. To think clearly, it's, it's probably hard for you even now to listen to a sermon this morning. And I realize that. And yet, I do want to urge us to try. I urge us to ask the Lord to enable us to turn our minds and our hearts towards his word this morning. Because I am convinced this is where we need to be right now. The pastor writing the book of Hebrews has made clear that Jesus Christ has brought about the hope that's described in chapter 6, verse 19 as the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What could be more relevant and significant than that in a time like this? That's what we need. That hope is the anchor we need in the storms of the present age that threaten to destroy us. And the fact is, we always need that hope, brothers and sisters, to live by faith in this world. They needed it in the first century and they've needed it every century since and we need it today. But in these specific days, perhaps it's partly the grace of God that we're better able to see just how much we do actually need it. Now, we've been working our way through this New Testament book of Hebrews for some time at Christ the King. Hebrews is a written sermon from the first century. We don't know the author's name. I refer to him or her simply as the pastor. But whoever wrote it, and whoever exactly were the recipients of it, we find ourselves now in the heart of this sermon. And we've said for several weeks that the heartbeat of Hebrews is this, that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. That that's how it all works. That that's how the promises of God for his people, the promises that began in Genesis with Abraham, how those promises will come to be. According to the scriptures, including Hebrews itself, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are all sons and daughters of Abraham, the man of faith. We're heirs of the same promise given to him, those of you who've been with us regularly are probably tired of me saying it, but I hope you're not tired of thinking about it. What is that promise? It's salvation. It's eternal life with God in a place. It's the promise of entrance into God's holy resting place. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We're told to strive to enter that rest because that's our hope. A few weeks ago now, we began to consider what it is then that anchors us to that hope, that anchors us to life in the very presence of God. What is it? What is it that keeps us 
eternally safe in the midst of anything and everything that now is or ever will happen in this life. Do you remember? It's what sets up everything we've been talking about in Hebrews chapter 7. If you have your Bible, look back there now one more time to chapter 6, verse 17. As we read verses 17 to 20 once more. I know we've read it every week for several weeks. But here's Hebrews 6, 17 to 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that, jumping to the end of the verse, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is our high priest. That is the only way the unchangeable purpose of God is brought about, brothers and sisters. It is the only way you and I will come to that life eternal with God in a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus Christ is our high priest, and he's entered in. And it's his presence there that is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in our lives today and this week and your whole life. We've spent now two, two weeks already in Hebrews chapter 7 trying to understand what the pastor is teaching us about this. Two weeks ago in verses 1 to 10 of Hebrews chapter 7, we looked at that mysterious figure of Melchizedek who's mentioned there at the end of chapter 6. The priest king of Salem whom Abraham met in Genesis 14 and we considered how the pastor sees that Melchizedek as a type of Jesus. How the oath that references him in Psalm 110 verse 4 sheds light for us on who the Son of God is as our high priest. I won't review all of that in any detail now, but that was only two weeks ago. Last week then in verses 11 to 19, we began to consider the contrast that the pastor draws between the Levitical priesthood established by the law of God in the Old Testament and Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so last week we began to consider reasons why the Old Testament priesthood was insufficient to bring about the promises of God while the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus is sufficient to do that. And really, that's where we still are as we come to our text this morning. But let me say that whether you have heard any of that teaching or not from the last two weeks, or whether or not you can remember anything about it, when we come now to verses 20 to 28 of Hebrews 7, what we find is that the pastor gives us basically the full picture once again. Verses 20 to 28 are all about the superiority of our high priest. And to help us track with the pastor's teaching here, I'll break it down, these eight verses, into three short sections. 
the pastor has three things to say about Jesus as our high priest and why Christ's priesthood is superior. Why it is that his priesthood is sufficient to bring about the promises. Three reasons. First, we consider the provenance of Jesus' priesthood in verses 20 to 22. Provenance. <laughs> I had to come up with a P word, as you'll hear in a moment. Provenance means origin, where something has come from. The provenance of Jesus' priesthood. And then secondly, we'll consider the permanence of Jesus' priesthood in verses 23 to 25. That it's superior, it's sufficient because it's permanent. And then finally, thirdly, we'll consider the perfection of Jesus' priesthood in verses 26 to 28. Jesus is simply in a class all of his own as a priest, and we'll see why that is. So it's the providence of Jesus' priesthood, the permanence of Jesus' priesthood, and the perfection of Jesus' priesthood that is before us. And I believe that if we can navigate all of that as quickly as we will, the result will be what the pastor says is God's intention for us, that you and I will have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So let us begin in verses 20 to 22 by considering the first reason for the superiority of Christ's priesthood, its provenance. Right away we see the point. It's all about an oath. Christ's priesthood is brought about by an oath. Look at verse 20. And it was not without an oath, the pastor says. For those who formerly became priests, that is the priests of the tribe of Levi, who we were considering last week, they were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The pastor says Jesus Christ is unlike any high priest ever under the old covenant because he has become high priest through divine oath. So significant is that difference, in fact, that the pastor says because of it, Jesus has been made the guarantor of a better covenant, a way of relating to God himself. There's a lot to understand in those few verses. Let me make sure first that the basic point is clear. The contrast here is with the Aaronic priests, that is, priests in the line of Aaron, a descendant of Levi. They ascended to their position not on the basis of a divine oath, but on the basis of divine law or instruction. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, God said, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. God simply commanded it. Exodus chapter 29 records what was done to consecrate them as priests, but there is in it no oath. God never swore anything to Aaron or any other priest after him, certainly not that his priesthood would be forever. 
so that there's a basic difference in why or how Jesus is made a priest as compared with all the priests in the Old Covenant. They were priests by virtue of the law of God. The Son became a priest by virtue of an oath. Now, to grasp the significance of that fact requires us to return to something we considered a few weeks ago in chapter 6 of Hebrews, again from verses 13 to 20. We spent a fair bit of time a few weeks ago considering the distinction that the pastor makes there between God's promise given to Abraham and God's oaths. And what we said, if you remember, was that there's always been one core promise or set of promises for the people of God. That promise, as we've said, is salvation, eternal life, life with God in a place. There's been one promise. But in the outworking of that promise through history, there have been times when God has sworn an oath with respect to it. Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20, made reference to two of those oaths, if you recall. One was an oath sworn to Abraham in Genesis 22. The other was an oath sworn in Psalm 110, verse 4. Those oaths are not the same in terms of their timing or even their significance. But what they do have in common is that as oaths, they serve a purpose. That both the oath sworn to Abraham and the oath sworn to the son in Psalm 110 verse 4 have the same purpose, therefore confirmation. That's what verse 16 of chapter 6 says oaths are for, if you recall. They're given to confirm something. Only we pointed out that when God makes an oath, there's more going on than just a verbal reaffirmation of the promise. When God swears an oath, it's also accompanied by a tangible element of surety or confirmation. God's oath involves not simply verbal speech, but active fulfillment of his intention. Alongside the first oath that God swore to Abraham, if you recall, God gave Abraham his son Isaac back on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. He provided a ram for the sacrifice. Abraham received a concrete confirmation of God's promise. But now it's the second oath referenced in Hebrews 6 that's in view entirely in chapter 7. Because of, according to verse 21 of our passage, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. As we've said in the last few weeks, that oath is taken directly from Psalm 110 verse 4. And that oath, the pastor has already pointed out, is how Jesus becomes our high priest. Only there's a significance to this oath that goes way beyond what all the other priests were granted because when Jesus is made high priest, it's in direct connection to the promise of God. In fact, in the giving of this oath, what is the tangible element? What is the concrete confirmation of the promise that accompanies the oath here? Do you see it's, it's Jesus himself. That's what verse 22 is all about. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The oath does that. 
The result of God's eternally binding oath is that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Do you remember what chapter 6 verse 17 said? When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, what did he do? He guaranteed it with an oath. Brothers and sisters, what does that guarantee look like? It looks like Jesus Christ. Jesus has become the tangible guarantee of God's covenantal intentions towards his people. Or as one scholar puts it, with his life, death, and ascension, Jesus has given us assurance that the beginning of the saving work of God will be followed by its completion. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And we need to put the emphasis on the fact that it's the human person, Jesus, the man, who's in view here. In verse 22 of our passage, the pastor places the name Jesus last within the order of the Greek sentence on purpose because it's the son as Jesus who's the guarantee. It's the son as Jesus who saves his people from their sins, as Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says. It's the Son as Jesus, the incarnated Son of God, the one who partook flesh and blood to help the offspring of Abraham. That's what's in view here. That matters. Because as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 made clear, the incarnation of the Son of God had a goal. Therefore, the pastor wrote back in chapter 2, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's the cross and the salvation it brings about that is the goal of the incarnation, brothers and sisters, the goal of God's oath, even. Not meaning that the cross is the end of Jesus' ministry, no. After his incarnation, his propitiation, his ascension, this same Jesus, this man, is now in heaven making intercession for us, as we'll see in a moment from our text. The fact that the Son, as Jesus, was made a priest by the very oath of God, means that in Jesus' ministry, we see God's promises being fulfilled. Jesus Christ has brought about the forgiveness of our sins, brothers and sisters. It's forgiveness that's at the foundation of the new covenant, the way God has designed for his people to relate to him. It's the only way we can ever dwell with God eternally. We'll have a lot more to say about that in Hebrews chapter 8. The point here is that Christ's priesthood is superior because of its providence in God's eternal oath. From that eternal oath, then, we move to consider the second reason for Christ's superior priesthood in verses 23 to 25, and that's its permanence. God's eternal oath is fulfilled by God's eternal Son. 
who has become high priest forever. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The basic contrast here isn't hard to understand. Even a glance at the old priesthood demonstrates how impermanent it was. When Aaron, the first priest, had served his term, God took him and his son Eliezer to the peak of Mount Hor. And there in Numbers 20, verse 28, we read, Moses stripped Aaron of his garment and put them on Eliezer, his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. Later in Joshua 24, when Eliezer died, his son Phinehas succeeded him. And so the succession continued because the end of all old covenant priests was the same. They died. Not so Jesus. Verse 24 says he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because the pastor says he continues forever. Literally, those of you with Greek New Testaments, and I know there are some of you, literally the Greek there reads, he remains forever. It is his remaining that makes his priesthood permanent. As one commentator puts it, there can hardly be any question that to remain describes the eternal character of the son's person. This is the indestructible life we were talking about last week from verse 16. Because he is eternal, his priesthood is powered by the eternity of God, not by the frailty of mortal humanity. That's why he holds his priesthood permanently. That language of holding it permanently could be translated unchangeably, inviolably. That kind of language refers to God's eternal life. That's the point. As the eternal son of God, Jesus has the final, absolute, permanent priesthood. According to verse 25, that fact has profound implications for us. Consequently, the pastor says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. The term translated uttermost there combines the idea of completeness with the idea of eternality. Some translations say he saves for all time. It means complete, absolute, total, eternal salvation. That's the implication for you and me of the fact that Christ's priesthood is permanent. We can be saved completely. Only before we move forward, note one other component of that verse. Note how it is that Christ saves those who draw near to God through him. The end of verse 25 says, Jesus saves us completely since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see there again the idea of permanence, don't you? Christ always lives, the pastor says. 
But that eternal existence brings great comfort, for as the pastor puts it, he lives always to make intercession. I think some other New Testament references help us understand what's going on here. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. John explains that Jesus advocates for us with the Father on the basis of his own death on the cross. In other words, John reminds us of what it is God sees in Jesus, who is now at his right hand. The marks that are on his hands and feet, the wound in his side, the debt of our sin having been paid. That is what lies at the heart of Christ's intercession for us. The removal of our guilt, the forgiveness of our sins, with Jesus in the very presence of God on our behalf. Who can condemn us? The Apostle Paul addresses that head on in Romans 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn, Paul asks. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. As Paul had earlier explained, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, dear friends, the intercession Jesus makes has a clear focus. It is, once again, the forgiveness of our sins, the foundation of our entire covenant relationship with the Lord. I actually don't think you have to literally take this verse to mean that Jesus is perpetually petitioning God on behalf of his people. The verse says it's by Jesus' ongoing life in the presence of the Father that he makes intercession for us. It is almost a figurative way of speaking of what the presence of the crucified, now resurrected Lord there with his Father means for us. It is perpetually interceding for us. Jesus need not speak at all, only need he to identify you as one of his own to direct his pierced hand toward you, and if he speaks at all, to say, Father, this is one of mine, who comes to you through my shed blood for her salvation. The point is this, your sins are dealt with completely, dear friends, because Jesus intercedes with the remedy of his cross. If you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, his wounds effectually intercede for your sins, day and night, every day, without end, forever. He is our superior high priest because his priesthood is permanent. Which brings us then, as we run to the end of our time, to the final part of our passage in verses 26 to 28, where the climactic reason for Christ's superior priesthood is given, his is a perfect priesthood. Just read with me these triumphant verses. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You could list a number of aspects of the perfection of Jesus' high priestliness in those verses. Jesus is sinless, holy, innocent, unstained. He was faithful as the incarnate son in his relationship to his father. He learned what it meant to be an obedient human being. He kept God's covenant through every kind of temptation perfectly, qualifying him to be exactly the kind of high priest we need. No other priest could say that. Because he was sinless, he didn't have to offer sacrifices for himself, but instead could offer himself as a sacrifice. Verse 27 makes that point. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You could thirdly dwell on the fact that the sacrifice Jesus offers is once for all. This is a marvelous truth we'll only touch on here briefly, but as one preacher puts it, this means that every work of God's grace in history before the sacrifice of Christ looked forward to the death of Christ for its foundation. And every work of God's grace since the sacrifice of Christ looks back to the death of Christ for its foundation. Christ is the center of the history of grace. There is no grace without him. Grace was planned for all eternity, but not without Jesus at the center and his death as its foundation. What an amazing offering his was. It was once for all. Fourthly, he is the son who's appointed high priest by the word of the oath. We discussed the nature of the oath a minute ago, where we connected it strongly to Jesus as a man. The emphasis now is on the fact that it's the son who becomes high priest, not downplaying the fact of his fully embracing a human nature, but instead calling attention to the, to the Levitical priest's humanity and frailty. Unlike them, the son is perfect, a high priest separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has been made perfect forever. And finally, in light of all that we've said this morning, we'll conclude with this, that Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest because who he is and what he's done makes him perfectly fitting. That's how verse 26 begins and it's how we'll end because it sums it all up. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest Christ as high priest matches perfectly what we need, brothers and sisters. This is where we need to be. He himself is the way by which the promises of God are realized for us and for all creation. The pastor this morning has shown us the superior, superiority of our great high priest's providence, permanence, and perfection. No wonder then he will sum it all up as he does in chapter 8, verse 1, where we move next week. 
Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Dear friends, this morning I want that to be the truth that rings in your hearts and your minds in the days ahead. We have such a high priest. He came into the world as the son of God. He lived a sinless life. He offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people. He rose to everlasting life and he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high where he lives and loves us forever, bidding us to draw near to God through him that he might save us completely. That is our hope. That is our anchor. There's only one way to respond today and always. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. In the name of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.